this is Zach Helminiak. Welcome to Becoming CEO. We have a special show today. The following is a discussion called Diagnostics, the intersection of investment, access, and innovation that took place in Palo Alto in September of 2015. The discussion is between three truly bright panelists, Ajit Singh of Artiman Ventures, Trevor Hawkins of Siemens Healthcare Diagnostics, and Ken Song of Ariosa Diagnostics, moderated by Tara Coach's stock of Sloan Partners. Now, whether you're a company owner, an employee, in the industry, or out of it, this discussion has something for you. They cover some really interesting and helpful topics around fostering innovation in your company culture, how to think about your product in the context of a global market, what's happening in India and China, and it's really got something for everyone. Now, if you like this and want to hear more podcasts like it, please use the contact form on sloanpartners.com to give us your feedback. Until then, enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by Sloan Partners, an executive search firm specializing in the diagnostics, life science tools, healthcare information technology, and laboratory testing industries. Sloan Partners, premier talent delivered. I'm Tara Kochestock. I'm president of Sloan Partners, and we're a premier search firm, and we're so delighted to host our panelists tonight. Um, I'm going to give each one of them a chance to introduce themselves, and then we'll get started. So thank you for joining us. Trevor? Okay, well thanks so much for inviting us. Uh, real pleasure. So I'm Trevor Hawkins. Um, I started off my career as, a, as an academic um, in the UK and went from uh, Cambridge to Cambridge over here where I postdoced with Eric Lander uh, in the early days of the, uh, the Mouse Genome Project and then the Human Genome Project. I then went into industry and joined a little company called Curigen uh, right before they went to IPO. And then I got headhunted back into uh, pseudo-academia. Uh, the US Department of Energy, uh, who had started the Human Genome Project, wanted a, a director. And I was hired by uh, Secretary Bill Richardson to come back and, and run that project. So once that project was, uh, was finally finished uh, in 2001, 2002, went back into industry and, and joined Amisham as the, the CEO of their uh, genomics business. Uh, that very soon was acquired by GE, and I morphed over and ran their molecular diagnostics business. Uh, then went over to Amsterdam and was the chief scientist for Philips, and then finally got the bug to come back to California uh, and start my own company. And that's where I built a company up and sold it eventually to Luminex. Uh, thought I was done, and uh, then got dragged back by my, my old boss to go to Siemens. And right now, I'm the uh, Senior Vice President for Innovation, Strategy, and Business Development uh, for our diagnostics business. I was referred to by our, one of our customers recently as the chief toy maker, and maybe that will become apparent a bit later. ATM. Nice. So actually, each time I talk to you, I discover something new in our uh, common uh, parentage, if you will. I didn't realize you were at Philips, too. Um, so I uh, was trained as an electrical engineer. That was my undergraduate. And then grad school was part computer science, part neurobiology uh, at Columbia. And was in academics for about seven years at Princeton, taught there. And sort of through a couple of serendipitous accidents, ended up at Siemens. Uh, spent 20 years there doing different things uh, in R&D. Uh, in corporate research, in robotics, artificial intelligence, and then ended up at Siemens Medical, where I spent about 14 years. 
in running different business units, starting with oncology and ending up at the healthcare informatics portfolio. Uh, left Siemens about seven years ago, did a startup for two years, had to do that. that there was that one bug that I had to be tried one way or the other. And uh, we sold our company called Bioimaging. It's a cancer diagnostics company to Roche two years after, um, after we started. And then uh, I joined this venture firm called Artiman, which is where I've been for the last, uh, last six, five odd years. And we're an early stage venture fund and I mostly invest in biotech. Perfect, thank you. My name's Ken. I am trained as a, I did my undergraduate at MIT studying biology and then I went from there to medical school out here in California, I went to UCSF. And I left medicine for the first time after I got my MD and I went to join McKinsey and did consulting for a couple years. Uh, quickly realized that was definitely not a long-term career plan for me. And so that actually brought me back into medicine where I finished my training in both internal medicine and gastroenterology. And actually had intended to stay in academia. I was gonna run an academic lab and do research because I kind of like the uh, development side of things. But then got recruited to join a venture firm here in the Bay Area, Venrock. And so I worked at Venrock for a few years on the healthcare side, um, uh, really mentored by Brian Roberts and did a lot of early stage investing. And it was while I was there that we came across this whole field of non-invasive prenatal testing found a technology out of a university in the Midwest that we thought was promising, so we seed funded it, and then it needed a uh, sort of a startup CEO to try to get it up off the ground, and I had agreed to do that for six months or so, or maybe up to a year, so that was back in 2010, uh, but I continued to stay on there, and we then sold our company at the beginning of this year to Roche after having been able to develop a product and commercialize it and run a P&L type based business and now we're part of the Roche organization and I'm still overseeing Ariosa and I'm now the general manager for Ariosa within the Roche Diagnostics Group. Very cool. Everyone has something in common in terms of having sold a company at Roche oh, and Siemens, yeah, indeed, so indeed, some absolutely. overlap for sure. Ajit, your company looks at white space companies, rare, precious, and cutting edge uh, with brilliant disruptive ideas. Talk to us about the developments or the disruptive developments that Artiman sees at the forefront of these disruptions? So Tara, the, the question can be answered in multiple ways. I could go very domain agnostic and say generally, what does it mean to be in white space? And then alternatively, I could answer in the context of diagnostics. So I'm gonna try and sort of find a path somewhere in the middle. So the way we define white space is we, we like to be the first investor in a first mover in a new space. Right, so that puts the bar very high. First investor in a first mover in a new space. Now those things are not a dime a dozen, those are very few, which means you wait, you see, you deliberate, you think, you co-create, and at the end from a $200 million fund, we'll end up investing in maybe seven or eight companies at max. Because those things are not easy to find. So we're in our fourth fund now, total about a billion plus in management. Um, and, and of course, when you look for those first mover, first investment, first new space, Example would be those areas that have not been innovated in a long time. So take a look at construction. Yeah, one industry that has negative productivity gain, I repeat, negative productivity gain, year after year for 100 years. Right? Think of it, negative productivity gain every year for 100 years. And now you say, how do you, how do you have a venture-backed company in construction? I mean, they're supposed to be run by GCs. Right? So here's two guys from Intel who had this epiphany that if you take a chip, like a Pentium, and you simply magnify it 
nine, 10 orders of magnitude, it looks like a building. It behaves like a building. So can you apply techniques from chip design to building design? And there you have it, an entirely new way to create buildings, something that hasn't changed in about 100 years. So now, apropos diagnostics, anybody had, so not that I'm gonna be HIPAA compliant here, but well, and since it's on record, anybody had an infection recently? And don't talk about stuff that you're embarrassed about, but talk about easy stuff, like stuff up here. Oh, you can no take one. the other end. I'm okay with that. Anybody Maybe a different had a throat infection recently? <laughs> Anybody had a throat infection recently? Do you know someone? Right, right. A friend. So, so when, when, you know, all of us, many of us have had kids, right? Yeah. What did you do when they have an ear infection? What did you do? How long did it take you to get to the pediatrician? Often days. Or you go to an urgent care and wait four hours. So are you going to put an otoscope on my phone? Or... So now, you know, that's a science that has not changed since the First World War. I mean, when we first discovered antibiotics, we started diagnosing infectious disease as a corollary. Wouldn't it be nice if you could know sitting at home whether you have a viral infection or a bacterial infection? That could disrupt the entire industry. That could change, change the entire workflow in the diagnostic process. So I'm, I'm going to do a little test case here. Here's a mock-up. Please feel free. This is a device you would potentially buy at CVS, assuming this company succeeds, uh, in say two years from now, three years from, two and a half years from now. It'll cost maybe 25 bucks or 19 bucks. And you will, you know, put a sample of saliva on it. So here's, you take this out, you tight, you know, and plug it back in. And you press this button and you wait for five minutes and it tells you, is it viral or bacterial? And if it's bacterial, what antibiotic is likely to work? And now you can make a choice whether you really should push a pediatrician hard to go there or go to urgent care. Or if you live in China or India or Brazil, go to the pharmacist and buy the right antibiotic, which you buy over the counter anyway. At least this time you'll know what the right one is or whether you need one at all. So that could totally change something that has not changed in 100 years. Uh, and I mean, one way to call it is disruption. So feel free to, this is a mock-up. Welcome That's to it. Around. So that would be an example of what we would normally do in, 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 in diagnostic space. So this leads right into our next question. What customer bases, and Trevor, you could start with this one, but what customer bases do you feel are going to experience the most significant change over the next three to five years, and why? That's a great question. I mean, I think, uh, I think the simple way to answer that is, is personalization. And it, it's really where Ajit was going with, with, with these comments. You know, I think the, the real power of, of companion diagnostics and the power of personalized medicine is, is really dramatically changing our industry. It's bringing together two elephants that never really talk to each other, the diagnostic industry and the pharma industry. And I think uh, you know, what is fascinating is we finally have the tools and the technologies and devices like that uh, that really enable us to enable our physicians and ourselves to answer key questions. Should I take this drug or should I take that drug or should I take no drug? Uh, did I take the right amount? Uh, these are all good questions, and you know, there's 21 companion diagnostic uh, uh, products on the market today. You, know, you can add a zero to that, I think, over the next 10 years at least. Um, but it's because of not only the technology and the fact that these groups have gotten together, but it's also our desire and our interest to improve our own healthcare by, by knowing more. So I think that's one of the really big changes that's going to occur. You know, you think about a company like a Roche or a Siemens or an Abbott, we are grocery stores. You know, we dress it up and make it sound great, but we're grocery stores. We sell a thousand different items. 
and sometimes the cheese is good with Siemens, and sometimes the wine is good with Roche, uh, but essentially we're grocery stores, and we sell the same thousand products. And what's really fascinating, I think, is over the next three to five years, you're gonna see these, these really interesting differentiated products come out uh, that I think will really transform the way that we think about our industry. For the first time, the diagnostic industry will be producing products that can allow a physician to take action directly uh, and decide on what, uh, what therapeutics to, uh, to offer. So I think that's one of the biggest changes that's gonna occur. Probably towards the end of the spectrum that you just said, rather than sooner. It's already happening, but it's really gonna hit us in the next five to 10. Can I, can I add to it? Please. So, you know, diagnostics historically has been a decentralized industry, sorry, a centralized industry, right? So a clear lab was born out of a couple of reasons. Number one, the technology was complex. It was expensive. So not every hospital, not every doctor could afford it. So you made a central lab and then bring samples in. And because these technologies were complex to use, the training was difficult, quality control was difficult. So it led itself naturally to a centralized model. But ask yourself if you were to design de novo, start from scratch. Are there more arguments in favor of centralized or are there more arguments in favor of decentralized? If you were to start de novo, if you had perfect choice, you say technology no bar, cost no bar, for the time being, just take that out for a second. What would you do? You'd make it decentralized. It speaks far more towards a point of care system, towards even going all the way to the consumer. And now you think there's a country like India or China, very low infrastructure, very poor infrastructure, you cannot ship a sample from a place to a centralized lab. Any, there's no way to get it out there in 24 hours. So there's even an imperative for a large market of two and a half billion people. You just can't do centralized anymore. So I think if you, if you were to say what new customer bases will arrive, I think the, the trend line would be move from a centralized mode of operation to a decentralized mode of operation. Now, of course, will that be universal? Obviously not. It'll still be a, an NGS lab like a foundation or a garden or one of those good ones. And, and they will need to remain centralized for a while. I think that will be a trend line. But the, I mean, I've, I've been in the diagnostics industry, we're running a service lab, and we partner with labs around the world. It's, it's interesting that if you didn't think about cost or efficiencies, but the reality is, just like, I think, as you mentioned, Roche and Siemens are sort of grocery stores, so are the lab cores and the quest of the world, mm -hmm. right. right? They offer thousands and thousands of tests. And part of what they do is, their competitive advantage is their distribution network and their scale, right. and the ability yep. to drive down cost to a point that makes it really difficult for regional or smaller labs to compete. Naturally. And so I think that there will be a push towards some decentralization of certain tests, but I think you know, people are looking to consolidate also within the industry to take advantage of those economies of scale. And so I think we'll see certain things move more into the consumer decentralized, such as the device you're sending around. Right. But I think you know, some of these are just such entrenched entities within the ecosystem of the right. healthcare right. system, and they have so much influence and power in their distribution network that I think they'll, you'll continue to see them as well. Very true. I mean, there's, to make a point, sometimes you have to take an extreme position. So, I mean, I did that. Yeah. And naturally, the, the high healthcare moves slow. So, Elias Zahuni, who was the head of NIH before, before uh, Francis Collins, he said, Anything that will be in routine clinical practice in healthcare 20 years from now is already working today. That was his euphemism for saying we're too yeah. damn slow, right? 
So there, there's bound to be some hybrid model. That's, there's no question. Yeah. But there are technologies where the, the cost and utility factor and, and the level of training required has significantly changed and they are bound to go point of care or decentralized. Mm. So are there, are there customer bases that we're ignoring as diagnostic companies or healthcare providers that we should be going after and are not? Or how, and, and then how do you see consumer-driven testing influencing this market? So is it gonna be based on the complexity of the test and ability to uh, produce and distribute and more complex tests will remain in the laboratories? How, how's it gonna play out? You answered the question. You first said, are we ignoring someone? And then you say consumer. <laughs> you took the wind out of our sail. Well, there's more to it. Oh. <laughs> we'll watch the start there. Well, I think that there's been a lot of, I, I do believe that one of the things that's exciting within anything within life sciences or healthcare is about trying to be disruptive. Because if you don't try to be disruptive, then you're never gonna bring about change. Uh, but I think one of the challenges in healthcare is still how do you engage with the consumer because we live in a microcosm here in the Bay Area or in New York City where you have educated consumers who are actually interested in their health and want to learn about it. And it's kind of like the effect, I was reading this business article around, you have all these, in the technology sector, you've got all these companies that are sprouting trying to take advantage of social media. But if you go to middle America, right, I mean, and I go out and I try to ride with our sales field, et cetera, you go to the Midwest, I grew up in the Midwest, you know, Michigan or these other places, the reality is the average person, of which constitutes the majority of your market, actually does not have any interest in that. They want to go to their doctor, they want to see their family doctor and be told, this is what you need. Right. Um, and then if you go out to other parts of the world, again, you'll find these pockets of these ecosystems where it's, people are more prone to adapt new technologies, but you still got this broad base of you know, consumers who don't necessarily want to take that full ownership. I mean, but how do you break out of that mold, right? Because yeah. if you don't start somewhere, then it's never gonna institute and propagate that change elsewhere. So I think that the consumer angle of healthcare is one where companies will need to continue to push and find that interesting thing where all of a sudden people gravitate towards it and say, okay, I wanna pay attention to it. And it's hard to know sort of what that's going to be. And I think, whether it be an entrepreneur or an investor, it is a little tricky because it's hard to predict that, yep. right, in terms of what's gonna be sticky. And the downside of healthcare, I feel like, as compared to sort of um, technology companies, is that the level of investment required to do that experimentation where you throw it out there and see whether or not people want to grab onto it, it takes a lot longer for us to do that. You can't just get a room of software engineers, throw up a social media site and see if it, it takes, and then if not, you can adapt to it. Yeah. And so that is, Part of the reason why I agree with that, that 20 years, the standard of care is stuff that we are working on. That's today. right, absolutely. Very true. Trevor, anything to yeah, add? Yeah, well, I, you know, I was listening to what you were saying, Ken. I, I think, though, that, um, you know, companies like Theranos, for as interesting and strange as they sometimes are. Um, I agree with the strange part. <laughs> has done as a real service, I think, in, particularly in this country, when we think about the, the real power of diagnostics and what the right price points should be and what the right turnaround should be. And I think it's really opened people's eyes to saying, you know, the consumer should be in charge of, of their fate. They should be able, like they can in Arizona, go and order their own tests. And so, you know, I think the market that will really expand dramatically over the next few years is that, you know, we will see major suppliers 
selling more to organizations who can then provide tests to a CVS, a Walmart, a bank, whatever it might be. I mean, I think we're gonna see testing in completely different environments than we've ever seen before. And it's because of point of care devices, it's because of the NGS technologies and the IT technologies that enable us to really make sense out of all this information. But we're really going through a major transition right now, I believe. Um, you know, the major companies that serve this space, the one I work for being one, will be completely and utterly different 10 years from now and may not even exist. I mean, I think with the, the level of transformation, and, and you know, you said that things move slowly in healthcare, except for now. I really believe that right now we're going through change that is just, just phenomenal compared to all other times in the history of healthcare. And it's because everything comes together in a way that I don't think we've ever seen before. And we finally have this consumer pull. We have everyone in this room and all of our friends. You want that data. And okay, middle America may not want it as much as, as we want it, but they will. And once they can figure out how to use it and we can design applications that make it simple on our iPhones, they will want it. And I, I, I really think we're at a tipping point right now. Can I, can I add to it? Please. Actually, two, two or three quick comments. So there's one area of healthcare where cost has consistently gone down and quality has consistently gone up for a given, for a given procedure. And that happens to be cosmetic surgery. And the question is why? It's uh, the consumer pays, perfect transparency of pricing, you know it up front, perfect transparency of outcome. Your nose looks a certain way at the end, I mean, so the outcome is known, at least in retrospect it's known. And that drives free market economy. So when, when price is transparent, quality is transparent, it drives free market economy. And there's no third party payer system. I'm not, I'm not arguing that everybody should be self-pay, but there is a point in there being self-pay because it drives free market economy that drives innovation and that does quality up, cost down. And, and so if you involve the consumer and some portion is self-pay, and we can argue where and how and how much, it will drive healthcare towards self-pay, towards a free market economy. And it, it will follow then all those broad macroeconomic principles that drive innovation. Unfortunately, that has been missing in healthcare for a while. And the third party payer system is to blame. So once again, I'm not arguing that everybody needs to pay. I mean, healthcare should be a social contract of some sort, uh, but to, to dissociate consumers so much is actually counterproductive. It's now seen time and again. Why is it that Devi Shetty at Narayana Health Center, uh, Heart Center in India, is able to do a cardiac surgery at $800 and have the best documented outcomes in the world? The lowest mortality, the, the lowest side effects or, or latent uh, morbidity, why? There's something to it. There's something to involving the consumer. So I, I do, and now that can apply that to diagnostics. I believe it's possible. Of course, you have to, you can't say, I'll have cancer diagnostics at home. You can have early screening of cancer at home, Ritu, right? Is that right? But you can't say, well, you have stage three glioblastoma and you have an EGFR mutation. Go figure. But, but you can, sorry? Thank you very much. You, you can monitor your serotonin level at home and know if, if I'm a depression patient, how is my day gonna be like? That's totally okay. Right? So you have to be very socially responsible in how you include the consumer because you can also go very ugly and for, you know, occasionally a 23andMe would happen and then they'll recorrect itself, but you can avoid that situation. 
But you know, we move from, to follow from that, we, you know, we're moving from FIFA service to FIFA performance. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, every country is, is at different speeds is doing this. And what I think is fascinating, again, is the power of the consumer. Have you ever wondered why you see more adverts on TV from Philips and GE and Siemens? It's because of the fact that it's your dollars. They want to get into your heads now that the best MRI out there is made by Siemens. And so when you have to go for an MRI and you get to choose, you're going to want to go for a, a, a hospital that has a Siemens device. And Roche will do the same, and, and, and GE, and all of, the, all of them are playing the same game. But it's, it's a completely different way than the way we were thinking just a few years ago. And, and maybe one more additional comment. So US healthcare, so for, as a, let's say if I was Siemens, or GE, or Philips, or, or Ariosa, US market was a significant market, was. So the key word is was. So when I started at Siemens in, in, the, in the late 80s, early 90s, you take the US number, you multiply that by two, and you have the global number. Now you have to multiply by five. So US is still an important market for sake of validation, because everybody looks for the, is it FDA clear? Yeah, is it CE mark, da da da? But when it comes to the market size, four times 80% of the market is outside the US. And by the way, half of that 80% is self-pay. So think about it. As much market is in the US under some payer program, two times as much is self-pay elsewhere in the world. So if I'm an early stage company and I'm looking to grow and develop and commercialize my product, and we've got all of this um, change going on in the marketplace, we've got a variety of customer bases, and with what you know today, where would you tell me, or how would you tell me or direct me to invest in my resources? Am I going after the consumer? Am I looking at the payers? Do I have to look at every piece of that? How do you answer that? Well, I think Great it question. depends upon your product that you're developing, but my own bias is that you have to first educate the provider, because if you have a consumer who comes in and requests something to the provider and the provider is not aware of that, that creates a really awkward situation. And this is something we've experienced directly through the commercialization of our product, which interestingly is geared towards pregnant women. And actually half of our, more than half of our business does come from outside the United States. There you go. You know, we're, over in, we're in over 100 countries and we did that sort of on our own as a small company, but that was all cash pay. Even so the Ariosa days, huh? Yeah. Oh wow, that's yeah. cool, that's very cool. And so. But I think for, for myself, in terms of just having gone through this just one time, and I would say that there's some element of luck always involved in, in getting to an outcome, is to be focused and to whatever you do, to be focused and not be distracted by other things. And then ultimately, as you think about going forward, is just, you know, how do you get out there and go after the provider to educate them first, but then, you know, the consumer comes behind. Because you need to think about both of them. And if you only think about one of them, then you're probably um, going to shortchange yourself. Yeah, I think the key word you said was focus. I mean, I, I, I think, uh, you know, big companies move slowly, have great logistics, you know, can manufacture perfectly, have good quality systems, but what they can't do is innovate. And, and so focus on the piece that the big company can't do. I think that's, you know, if I was to give advice, that, that's the one thing I would, I would say is the, the most important piece um, because you know, for as much as you, you, you hear big company CTOs talk about innovation and what it means, the reality is it's, an, it's a super tanker headed in one direction. And so if you can find a way to, 
to grab hold of that super tanker and let them do all the hard work in terms of uh, distribution, logistics, manufacturing, and so forth, then, then there's real benefit. Keep Linda has a question. question. And yeah, may I ask? Yeah, a question along that line. And one of the, uh, it was about entrepreneurial impulses in building, slightly orthogonal. But I looked with great envy at my counterparts who work and build new companies in the medical devices field. Because there are four or five major players. You know what the gaps are in their product lines. You start a company, you seed fund it, and within a certain reasonable time frame, it finds its way into the portfolio among the Giants. Having lived in the diagnostic field now for um, years, we don't have such impulses. Companies get built, a handful of them find their way to a, an acquisition, another handful find their way to IPO. What do you think, representing two members of something in between? No. No, but I, I disagree, though. I don't think it's ecosystem. I, I, I think what you're getting at here is, is there's so many options, though, that we have. I think that's the, the issue that we, we suffer from in diagnostics. You know, you can, you can think of, of, of one part of diagnostics and come up in this room with 50 different ways to, to solve that problem, all of which are legitimate and would probably work, but only one of them will truly go forward eventually. Right. You look at a medical device, I don't think that world is, is like that. You talk to the guys in imaging, uh, in, in, in Siemens and, and Philips and so forth, absolutely not. There's, there's very clear paths in which they're going. The, the, the degrees of freedom are less. So I think the issue is not so much ecosystem, but I think it's just this wonderful world that we live in with just the technology is there to do so many different things. And we've seen that time and time again over the years, uh, and finally, VHS and Betamax go head-to-head -head and one wins. Do you see the, the giants in the industry developing an appetite for, for competing and creating the best systems? Like we've seen in the last 10 years, Roche has done some really good stuff. Roche acquire a company about every 16 days, the last time I checked. <laughs> Very annoying. And they're good at actually assimilating them. I mean, if you look at the model of uh, this DC-based company, Danaher, they have an engine. Yeah. They have an engine that knows how to acquire and systematically integrate. I mean, Siemens, I was there for 20 years. We managed to dash up one out of every three acquisitions. I mean, we destroyed, we created 11 billion in value, but we also destroyed 6 billion in, in, in value. I, I'll just supplement and try and answer your, your ecosystem question. So now the following is not a complete answer, but it's an answer to some part of your question. It's always helpful to go upstream and know your customer's customer's customer or your customer's customer or your customer's 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 customer. You know, who's the person who will eventually pay a dollar for your service, for something that you provide? And then, of course, you may not have to sell to that consumer. You may be selling to somebody in between, like you build a company and you sell it to Siemens or you build a clear lab and you sell it to doctors who sell it to consumers or you might build one of those devices who, that actually sells to consumers. In every single case, I repeat, with zero exception in every single case, you have to know what the consumer's pain point is. And then you can decide where is the most value creation opportunity in that quote-unquote ecosystem or a more mundane word for that would be supply chain. Right? So let's say you're in trucking industry. Yeah? The eventual consumer is a guy who's going to get a shipment load at his house or factory. But the most value creation opportunity is not with a trucker it's not with a shipper, it's actually someplace in between called the consolidation agent. That's where 30% inefficiency is. 
and you find that niche to go. So like in medical devices, you'll see the value creation opportunity would be the pain points of a Siemens as opposed to the pain points of an end consumer. But you have to start with the pain points of the end consumer. So going upstream to the customers, 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 customer, that's not an option, that's the law. All of you spoke about innovation, and all of you have touched this in some way. In running the companies that you've run, or oversee, or acquire, how do you foster a culture of innovation short and long term? How does that really happen? What? What do you want? Okay, so in big companies, um, it's really hard. I mean, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult, I think. What you have to do is separate it. I mean, big companies operate on hourly or daily uh, P&Ls, um, and it, it, you cannot have innovation run on that cycle. And so, you know, the way that we think and the way that, that similar companies think is, is about how do you build walls so that you can, you can have these innovators have a career path, have the freedom to fail, which is very important, uh, and have the freedom to, to try things that, that really don't, they don't know where the, where the future might be. They don't have to fit into some long-term strategy, some long-term business plan uh, within, within the current organization. But it really is very difficult. I think, uh, you know, historically, you look at where the innovation has come from for big companies, it's almost certainly always bought in. You know, for as much as we all try to have and spend a lot of money trying to have in-house in innovation, it, it, is, it is difficult. It doesn't fit it's, the mold, right? You're... It's harder, it's harder, although there are some unique exceptions. I mean, look oh. at Genentech, the, you know, or Zeptin, or what have you. Um, so it, it may be, it's always good to learn from nature, right? So you took the freedom to fail uh, analog, and I'll, I'll build on that. Um, what would be, what would be the, a most evident example, the most frequent example of freedom to fail. It's actually nature, it's life. What, what's nature's innovation platform? How does nature innovate? Creates life, right? Life is nature's form of innovation. So where is the rate of innovation the highest in nature somewhere? Galap Galapagos, does that remember Darwin, Beagle? Look at the number of new species being created. So, and then you ask yourself, you know, if you're somewhere on the coastline in any of the islands, you have, I don't know, 100 species, you go about a mile away into the ocean, you have 100 species, but you go about 200 meters away from the coastline and there's a million species and about 100 being created every year. And you ask, what's different? So, some analysis, there are three ocean currents coming in. So, southwest, southeast, southwest, and north. Temperature is about 98.6 degrees. And there are coral reefs in the, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the, the ocean floor. And that's constantly mixing up this new life coming in from different locations and creating new life. And there's no penalty for failure. Something doesn't work. Darwin, in his, one of his manifestations, acts and something else comes about. So where, where's the man-made equivalent of that? Where's or the person-made equivalent of that? Palo Alto, Menlo Park, right, right here. <laughs> so you go sit in Starbucks on University Avenue in Waverly, and you can walk into any pitch being made and contribute and walk away. And I kid you not, that happens once a day. So there is something to be said about, Glenda, you said, use the word ecosystem. 
Silicon Valley happens to be an ecosystem. It got built by accident. Nobody said, let me design the best innovation platform. That didn't happen. But we can learn from what happened. I mean, so in an ecosystem, there are three great universities, UCSF, Berkeley, Stanford, and a few others. There's a few anchor customers, so, or anchor innovators, so Genentech in, in pharma, Kaiser in healthcare, Cisco in telecom, Intel in, in you know what I'm talking about. And then there is some 10,000 different smaller players and some 50, 100 venture firms. That's an ecosystem. And the temperature is right. And there's, fortunately, the immigration law hasn't quite hurt us in California yet. So I, I do believe in extreme value of creating ecosystems. So it, you can consciously create it, but it's a 30-year journey. It's, it's a marathon. It's not a, it's not a sprint. I just want to build off what Trevor said. It's, it's interesting because, you know, at Ariosa, we, we built it from a small company. We built it up to about 300 people at the time that we were acquired, and now we're part of Roche, which has 88,000 employees. And I think fostering or maintaining that innovation is really challenging. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've only been a part of the Roche organization for a little bit less than a year. Um, but we're continuing to be able to innovate, and I think it's trying to preserve that culture. And part of what I think makes younger companies and the larger thousands and thousands successful is I think, well, there's two things. There's a mentality of, I think we've always said to ourselves, when you're going to go do something, ask for forgiveness, don't ask for permission. Because as soon as you're asking for permission, you're sort of going down these different things and you're trying to get other people to say it's okay to do, rather than doing something and then if it works out, great, no one finds out about it, but then if you screw up and then at that point, then you can sort of do damage control. Right. Um, and I think that when you enter into a much larger organization, if the processes are imposed on you, the, the problem is that that, com that larger company has such a long history of experience of seeing so many one-off things that didn't go well. Mm. And whenever you experience something that doesn't go well, it usually creates a process or some sort of a policy. And so one thing bad that I happens amongst 80,000. The birth of a policy. Right, all of a sudden that policy is now applied across the entire organization because they had wow, an HR what a great insight. What a great insight. Um, Whereas maybe you can say for a lot of companies that are young and especially for first-time entrepreneurs, it's really being naive that helps them be successful because they don't know any better. So, you know, you could be violating some HR rule or some other finance accounting rule. You don't know any better, but you don't get bogged down by that because you're just focused on trying to get your product out. So I, I do have one thing to add. So what is the success rate if you have, let's say, 100 projects in Siemens or Genentech or Google or something? How many of them succeed? How many of them are truly cutting-edge innovative? You change the world. What happens? One out of how many? So pick a number, Glenda. One out of 500. Any other guess? Come on. We can all play Russian roulette here or Palo Alto roulette. <laughs> right? it, the number is one out of two, you know, two orders of magnitude, 100, some, something like that. How, how many startups reach that stage, really succeed? I'm sorry, success is create a Genentech, create a Google, create a Cisco, create, create something of fundamental disruptive value. Create, how about this? How about create a billion dollars in value, not being an app, or create 100 million in revenue? Yeah, billion in app, you could, you could do WhatsApp and you have 19 billion, I have no clue why. No, I have some clue why, I have two, teenage, two, two girls, so. That, that ratio is one out of 1,000. So let not, let's not be in this illusion that startups, da da da, they do some brain, Nonsense, it has a very high failure rate. He's right that the failure rate, the speed of failure is high, so fail fast. You're gonna fail anyway, fail fast. The problem with big companies is we fail too damn slow. That's the problem. It's not the failure rate, it's the failure frequency, failure speed.
a fine line to get to where you got, you know, to, to truly be able to innovate something and maintain that culture. Um, you, when Trevor, you were talking about that, I had this vision of this room. You know, there's there's Siemens and there's the corporate culture and suits, and then there's the room of the crazy people and they're the innovators, right? Because yeah. they don't fit the company culture typically. And so, as a company grows and you develop processes and policies, it squashes some of that. And then the people who are the innovators no longer fit the culture. So then, how do you how do you how do you melt the two? So well, what we do is, is we, we'll, uh, we'll tell the Siemens story now, the two of us. Come on, let's do it. Hey, what we do is, is we, it's, it's, I mean, the key thing is the career path. Okay, so from, from the individual's perspective, we have a, an innovation career path where we, we make people fellows, senior fellows, whatever. And so those folks can be on that cycle, um, you know, and, and typically what tends to happen is, is they'll, they might be on that cycle for a few years, have a great idea, work with that idea, and then maybe they'll go into a business unit and actually develop that from an R&D perspective, and then maybe they'll come back out again. And so we have um, a couple of dozen of these kinds of individuals spread around the globe, and they are different, and they don't wear suits, and uh, we try as much as possible to, to really embrace that. Um, and sometimes have issues embracing that, but it's but it's important that we do try, uh, because you know all companies need people who think and act differently. That's part of the overall culture. So I think it's it starts with the people. That's always very important um, from what I've seen. Once you've got the people and you give them the freedom, um, I mean another example is we try and have our innovators if they want to be, you know, adjunct professors at the local university, then fine, they can they can go do that and spend one day a week uh, doing that. They can they can write books, they can have manuscripts and so forth. And so, if you try and give people freedom, uh, they will think differently and they will start to innovate. But it is incredibly difficult. Uh, I will not deny that within big companies, it's hard. There's there's some. I mean, when you think of innovation, you don't think of a large company. You know, see like Siemens, you have a very stodgy image of. Kind of dark suit and stuff. Uh, you unfortunately did not have the luxury of working for Reinhardt. No. Uh, you, you started what a year after he yeah, left. Yeah. So I had I had the luxury of two really great mentors in my life. They were both great innovators. One was Oliver Sacks, who unfortunately passed away a few days ago, and the other was Eric Reinhardt, who ran Siemens for 14 years, and I worked for him for all of those 14 years. Uh, he built the DNA of innovation in a very large company, and he had some remarkable simple rules. I'll give you one or two examples because I could spend an entire evening talking about him. Uh, he says, if you're gonna have a meeting, have an inefficient meeting. Now here's a German physics professor saying, please have an inefficient meeting. So he used to do what is called the Rothwein seminar, so red wine seminar. So he'd invite five people at his home at 6 p.m., we'll stay until midnight. And his idea was, unless there's an egalitarian dialogue, unless there's a free-form Socratic dialogue where there's no judgment, no hierarchy, you cannot innovate. And he, he had a great definition for dialogue. He said, when two people listen to each other with genuine curiosity to understand their viewpoint. So listen to every word and comma and period is, is calculated. You listen to each other with genuine curiosity. You can't listen out of generosity, right? If I have a natural hierarchy, I'm the boss and you are my subject, I can give you audience and hear out of generosity, right? I have to hear, listen out of curiosity. And then I have to try and understand your viewpoint. That means I have to draw it out of you. You may have a language barrier, you may be an introvert, you may be shy, you may be scared. So it's my onus to draw it out of you. 
When you do that, then you have a dialogue. And then you try and do that in 10 people. That's inefficient. No wonder large company innovation is slow. But that's the right way to innovate. Innovation doesn't happen because you want, if you put 10 times more money in Silicon Valley, will we have 10 times more innovation? No. That's just simply a long, slow down process. So, and I, I, if I can't sing enough praises of the man, it's because he was simply one of a kind human being. He built that environment of fearless, absolute fearless dialogue. You could pitch in any time you wanted, and there was no hierarchy. And Siemens, I mean, two thirds of the products in that time were less than two years old. Eight years after leaving Siemens, I still sing, sing praises. So you can, it's a very conscious process, you can do it. It's not, it's not just accident, it is consciously doable. But you've got to create a culture of free-flowing dialogue, transparency of both information and intention. Think of it. Transparency of information is easy. You can put dashboards. Transparency of intention, think about it. You have to do it consciously. That you can build a very innovative environment. Of course, you have to have the sabbatical and ecosystem and have the academics come in. All of that has to be done, no question. But you can do all of that and have a hierarchical culture where all voices are not, all cultures are not, all types of thinking are not heard. You cannot innovate, period, end of discussion. I'm so flexible, say, completely non-dogmatic. I almost wore my boring dark suit today, almost. <laughs> <laughs> Ken, tell us about how, how you do that in Roche compared to Ariosa. How what is? How, how you do that culture building in Roche versus Ariosa. Well, I think that, um, you know, the, on the Roche side of things, they've acquired, I think, as you noted, a lot of companies over the fairly short period of time. And what they are trying to do is preserve the cultures within those respective entities so that they can preserve sort of that innovative engine so that it doesn't get too caught up in the standard archaic processes, which I think would be a little stifling. And so it's a challenge, but I think being conscious of that and being aware of that actually is at least the first step. And then it's obviously sort of following through and ensuring that you create the right environment for that to be able to continue. We're gonna switch gears a little bit. Talk to us about what's happening in the rest of the world. Talk to us about China's diagnostic developments and its relationship with US companies, both as collaborators and as competitors. So I'll start with that. So China is, is, uh, is somewhat different. You know, I think you step back a little bit and despite what's happening in the markets, um, you know, China is still attractive, double digit growth, uh, something like 800 million people moving from rural areas into, uh, into the urban areas and therefore requiring healthcare. Um, you know, another interesting stat is something like 5 million cancer cases will come out of China in the next 12 months. That's 25% of the overall global burden. And so the opportunities there are, are, are really stunning. I think the, you know, the issues though have, have really remained very much the same over the years. How do you get the right talent? How do you keep that talent? How do you work your way through the regulatory changes? And as we're seeing with the CFDA, it's, it's constantly changing, particularly in the way in which they treat uh, outside companies. It's okay, you need to move in and manufacture in China, but you now need to innovate in China as well. And what is the definition of innovation in China? And all through that backdrop, you've just got a massive country with logistic issues, the issues that Ajit mentioned earlier of the fact that you know, the healthcare infrastructure is just so re uh, remarkably different. You know, with all these things happening uh, within, within the country, you still have something like 2,500 hospitals 
uh, came online in the last 24 months, and yet the class two and class three hospitals are still completely crammed. And so we're not even keeping abreast of the, of the, of the demand that's needed uh, within the country. So still lots, of, lots and lots of issues. You know, for a company like Siemens, you know, it's, it's constantly a, uh, a treadmill that you're on to keep, to keep uh, uh, just from, from standing still. You know, there's a lot of these changes. Uh, certainly the way in which we have to deal with distributors is constantly, constantly changing. Um, you know, the, the, the regulatory issues I really can't emphasize enough. It, it is a minefield and we, we are constantly trying to figure out how to navigate our way through that with the products that we bring in. It's okay to have them FDA approved, but then you have to go through uh, lots of hoops as well to uh, have them see FDA approved. And so things can happen slowly. Um, I think the other thing that, that is fascinating though with, with, with China is if you manage it from within the country, uh, particularly at Siemens, we, all of our management structure there is all, is all local Chinese. Uh, we, we have people who go back and forth from, from other parts of the globe, but it's very much local for local. And I think that has been a, a, a huge success. The one regret, I think, though, uh, if I look back on, on what has happened over the last few years, there's not enough innovation. And I will you know, just point out one, one thing that I think has been really uh, terrific is what GE has done. So GE set up a center of excellence in Shanghai about uh, 15, 20 years ago. And that was really first of its kind. They've now developed three or four more of these across China. And it's, they're really one of a kind in, in our industry to have done that at such an early stage. So not only are they manufacturing, but they're really innovating. I think if more companies can follow through on, on those kind of approaches, we just launched uh, something we call China House, um, you know, 15 years after Roche, so uh, after GE, sorry. So we got there in, in the end. But more companies need to do this. I think it will really, uh, really start to tip the scales. But it's a fascinating country, and I, I lived there for three years uh, and uh, developed my company there um, uh, with its manufacturing being based in, uh, in Shanghai. Really fascinating the way it's developing. But Ken, you know you've had a lot of experiences there as well. Yeah, I guess it depends upon from what angle. I mean, on one hand, Roche as a very large multinational company and Siemens as a multinational company can be successful because they can put in the infrastructure in that country. And I think that's important is to have people there, right? You, if you have an idea that you're gonna work from it remotely, I don't think that's gonna be successful. But you know, the point on China innovation, I guess when I first visited there for the very first time a few years ago when I was in still a venture capitalist, there was a lot of talk about innovation. And then I think my view for China and sort of at least what the opportunities are is that there's no need for them to be innovative because there's such a huge economy there in terms of number of people. And all they need to do is just replicate what has already been successful elsewhere in the world within their country. And they don't need to care about any other market because they're the largest market in the world. So, you know, Google is just, and the government will intervene on your behalf. So Google doesn't work in China. So Baidu is the huge, right, uh, search engine there. And you see something similar with Alibaba, which is the e-commerce e marketplace, or WeChat instead of, you know, these other social text texting uh, applications. And I think the same thing is you're sort of seeing in healthcare is, you know, there's a lot of local companies that will just copy the infectious disease asset and then they'll just sort of market that themselves and they'll have a lower cost of goods and just focus on their market. And so I guess from an entrepreneur's perspective, if you want to see an opportunity in China, I don't think that you need to think about innovation. You just need to see what else has already worked elsewhere on the world. Is it happening in China? If it's not, then move there 
you know, find a local team and then start something and then there's a large enough market and then don't be as distracted about any other market besides China. So, but that's, that's actually just my own personal observation um, that I've seen sort of within China and where the opportunities are over the next little bit. Your, your comment of if you see it's not working in China, then move to China and go do it. Well, no, 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 not that it's not working in China. I'm saying it's not there things, in China. If, right, if things that are already working Working here. elsewhere, it's not there in China. Yeah, yeah. So the uh, smaller market, the, you know the American dream, like you, know, you finish your high school, finish your college, you know, go to Europe for a vacation, come back, buy a home in suburbia, get a job, get married, have two kids and live happily ever after, right? What was the Indian dream? <laughs> move to America and live the American dream. <laughs> So, so apropos this China and India thing, India also innovation is very hard uh, for very similar reasons, albeit the whole notion of copying is, is not that well developed in India because even copying requires some uh, legislative protection, which Indian government is not giving. There was a, a sly remark there, I hope you got my point. Um, the, uh, the, the problem of basic innovation not happening in India is the ecosystem or the lack of universities in the ecosystem, lack of great universities in the ecosystem. is very few. Now you might argue, hey, wait a minute, all the Indians who you see around in the US, they seem to be very, very well-educated. That's, that's not the outcome of the university. That's just, it's such a small ratio, such a extensive competitive process to get into a university. If you were smart enough and diligent enough to get in, the university doesn't need to do much more than that, than to just keep you there for five years you come out at the other end reasonably smart and you end up in the US. That's, honest to God, that's exactly what's happening. Apropos healthcare, interesting observation. Diagnostics is 3% of healthcare expense. Yet it controls 70% of expense downstream and 100% of outcome. 25x leverage, there's no industry in the world. Now, of course, that's useful anywhere in the world, but in India, far more so because at the end of the day, it's still a developing economy, 700 million people, live at $3 a day, it's relatively poor. So to leverage diagnostics to control cost downstream is critical. And yet, we, we just said basic innovation is not possible. So what do you do? The answer is in business model innovation. Like, so example, pathology, cancer diagnostics. There are 17,000 pathologists in the US. How many are in India? Can you guess? 800. 800. So now somebody, actually a 23-year-old young lady who had studied sociology, got that observation and said, how about if I run the technical portion of the test in India, digitize the slide, put it on the cloud, and have a panel of great pathologists at Hopkins and Stanford and Peter Sinai and so on, read the case online, and have the best stat in the world. So this now 25-year-old girl has built a, a multi $10 million revenue stream in less than two years, just harnessing that business model and using one critical technology, which was digitization and, and, and having a supply chain, if you will, great pathologists in the US. So there are many examples like that and you've just got to look at those niches. There's plenty of great innovation, but it's not in basic science. We don't teach curiosity in India, unfortunately. We become curious after coming to the US. That was a serious comment. We don't teach curiosity in Indian schools. But when I saw my girls grow up in the US, I said, my God, look at the questions they're asking. Somehow curiosity must be inculcated, very de novo, ground up. I mean, we were taught to just memorize and get a good grade and be done with it. 
we're going to enter the bonus round. This is an opportunity for our panelists to ask one another questions. So, um, Trevor, why don't you get us started? Sure. I'll, sorry, I'll ask Ajit a question then. So, you know, as you think about India, and you think about how India is going to develop over the next five years, let's say, is it going to be the same as China, or will it be somehow different, and why? And I'm talking about healthcare. Oh, great, great question. So actually, there's a more general observation, and I'll answer in context of healthcare. If you follow path of economies in general, so take the Roman civilization, take the British Empire, take the American civilization, you always go through a cycle which has land reforms, then mechanized farming, industrialization, then tech, and then service. So whether that happens over a 200-year cycle, like British Empire, or a 100-year cycle, like the United States, or a 50-year cycle, like China, the path is identical. You start with land reforms, so you create economies of scale in the primary system of value creation, that's agriculture. From there, you go to mechanized farming, technology, industrialization, tech, and then service. India is a strange exception. It didn't follow that path. It went the opposite way. It started service first. So how did India go into the global economy in 91? By becoming the software outsourcing, the, the, the freaking BPO of the world, the call center of the world. Started with service economy, you still don't have land reforms. If a farmer has four kids, or four sons, I should be specific, and two daughters, the land gets divided into four parts, and the land gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So the point I'm making is, India's development in healthcare, like anything else, will be very different from China, because the basic path of economy is different. So things that are service-oriented will do exceptionally well in India. Things that are product innovation will do horribly bad in India. China has actually an advantage over India in that product innovation case, but when it comes to service innovation, I think India takes the cake. Should I ask Ken my question? Then? Yes. Okay, so then we're, I'm done. Um, so Ken, uh, Ariosa focuses on an NIPT, and you know we the technology that you use and the technology that your competitors use can go an awful lot further. So my question is, you know, we've seen just incredible data being collected and, and disseminated back, great actionable data on Downs and Edwards syndrome and others. How much further can we go? And more to the point, how much further should we go? When it comes to prenatal screening? Yeah. So I think our philosophy when we started the company was that we looked at market opportunities where we could actually not change what physicians were necessarily doing, but actually we can give them something that was much better and much more accurate. And I think we've sort of held to this philosophy that, you know, medicine, especially the practice of medicine changes so slowly that what you want to do from at least a healthcare delivery and sort of standard of care is try not to change what people are already screening for and offering pregnant women. Um, there are other entities which are trying to push the envelope to say, look, you can look at many, many more things. You can understand the entire genome of your fetus, et cetera. But I actually don't think most people actually want that. I don't think physicians want that. Patients don't want that. It increases the complexity of the counseling. You take the promise of what could be a very good new standardized test that could be administered in the primary care setting. And if you start to make it more complicated, then you actually put that back in the hands of the specialist, which Very therefore true. limits the adoption of Very it. And so <clears throat> there is a lot of different uh, dialogue that's going on in regards to expanding and looking at other conditions. But the other problem is that these things are exceedingly rare and therefore almost impossible to validate. And so any sensitivity and specificity claims cannot be made on these. 
which further complicate the introduction of these things into actual practice. Should I ask you a provocative question? Go for it. Should Siemens buy Cepheid? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a good question. It's a question we get asked a lot, not particularly about Cepheid, but, but acquisitions in general, because you, know, you, you look at the AVD market, there are three companies who basically have the entire market, Roche, Abbott, Siemens. Roche, well, Abbott, let's start with them. So Abbott have gone through a lot of changes, the split from the pharma diagnostics, they're doing their thing, they've made some acquisitions, but they're, they're, they're doing their own thing. I'm being, I'm being quite successful. Roche, as we said earlier, makes an acquisition every other day um, and has been very successful at what they do. And everyone always asks me, you know, so, so what's Siemens doing? Well, you know, one of, the, one of the ways to answer that question is you have to wind the clock back to 2007. We acquired three diagnostic companies into the company when we had zero diagnostics. We bought Bayer, DPC, and Dade Bearing within the space of about a month. Um, very interesting set of decisions, very interesting rationale as to why three were bought. But overnight, we went from nothing to about a $5 billion business uh, in, in, in global diagnostics. And there started the problem. And the problem really is, is, is we ended up with at least, at least three of everything. So that is a bit of an issue in the IVD market where you can't just call your customers tomorrow and say, you know what, we're not gonna provide this product to you tomorrow. Um, you know, we have one other that you should like. No, that doesn't happen that way. Hospitals don't buy day by day, it's, it's yearly five-yearly based contracts. And so we initiated a program started in 2007 to really rationalize our product line, and we're by no means done with it. We have something like 57 unique devices in the market right now, 57. If you were to look at the same space that Roche uh, is, is occupying, they have about a dozen. Wow. So what, what does that really mean? It means that if I have a dollar, I have to divide it over 57 project, product, projects and products. They have a dollar, they can divide it over about a dozen. So it, it, it really changes the way you think. So we, somewhat quietly, have been in a very different mode to everybody else because we have a lot of internal issues to fix. And, and you've read in the papers, you know, that some of the things that we're doing about separating the company into a company within a company, uh, potentially going even one step further than that. So to your question, we're fascinated by the molecular market. We, are, we have a small presence in molecular that we acquired through the Bayer acquisition. No secret, I think, that that is pretty small. Um, and a lot of it is outside the US. Um, and it's a really fascinating discussion as to what we should do next. We missed the boat on NGS. Uh, we looked very, very hard at Illumina. Uh, we had a, a relationship with Illumina uh, right before Roche came in. Um, and, uh, you know, if we'd had one ounce of sense, we would have bought Illumina back then immediately at, at twice what Roche were offering, uh, but that's all 2020. But, you know, what you do now is fascinating. I mean, I always say to people, if you had a $5 billion to spend in molecular diagnostics, what would you buy? There's only five or six companies, if you're the size of Siemens, yep. there's only five or six companies in the world that would move the needle for a company the size of Siemens. Very true. And that's one of the biggest issues we, that we have today. Um, and all of those five have their fleas and their issues. Right. They're either not profitable, uh, like in the case of Cepheid, or they have other product line issues. 
Uh, and so it's a really, it's a, you know, people are always very critical of us about, you know, what, why aren't you doing stuff? What do you, believe me, we're very active. It's just finding the right target is, is really hard because we can go out and buy a ton of small companies. First of all, we would never be able to integrate them. Second of all, we would kill them all because we would try and integrate them. Uh, and, and, you know, third, they really wouldn't move the needle. Yep. We're, a, we're a $15 billion organization annually. If we, if we buy 100 companies, little ones, it wouldn't move the needle. And that's the real problem within big organizations. You mentioned the internal issues. I, I you know, sort of live, live that life. Yeah. So I'll ask a question to Ken and, and to others, and, and you'll see how it's related to the point you raised. Why did dinosaurs go extinct? So there's three theories, the meteor theory, right? So the meteorite hit Earth. There's a second theory, rather unknown, the female dinosaurs kept getting headaches, right? And there's a third theory, there's a third theory, about 96% of their metabolic energy was focused on moving the system, moving the organism itself. And only in, counted in number of ATPs firing or adenosine or mitochondria creating energy. 96% was internally focused, only 4% was responding to the environment. You cannot innovate, you cannot respond, be responsive to the environment. And, and that's actually the, a, a problem that we face as, as large companies. And I mean, I, 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 you should speak for Roche in, in that context. I have very peripheral view of Roche. I sold a company to Roche and they did extremely well with a very small acquisition. We had a million in revenue, or a million and a half in revenue. They bought it for 100 million. And they've made a, something good out of it. A few thousand installations, a few tens of millions of revenue. So you're right, it won't move the needle for a, Roche is what, 7 billion or, or in diagnostic? More than 10 billion, right? In, that's pharma and diagnostic. Just combined. diagnostic. That's just diagnostic. So you're right, even tens of billions won't move the, the needle, but it's something strategically important to them. So I guess the question would be, how do you see internal metabolic energy of Roche versus externally focused metabolic energy of Roche? <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm qualified to comment on the internal metabolic versus external. Hey, when you are new, new incorporating <laughs> in a company, you have the best view. Um, I would say that they focus a lot. I mean, when I say, when you say internal, I mean, I guess there's a lot of things that are internal. There's sort of supporting your existing customer base is absolutely critical. Stuff you have to do. Right. right? Um, but I would say that when you look at the number of product launches that they do on a given year and what they put forth publicly to, the, to Wall Street, it's actually a, quite an extensive list. And it's pretty impressive in terms of the new product launches that they communicate and the ones that they actually end up hitting on. And so I would say that from an external perspective, they're, they're not going to be the ones that are going to define and develop an entire new industry. Mm -hmm. But what they do is I think they understand where their presence is in the marketplace and what they need to do is get the feedback from their customers. And then it is like a big ship. They stay committed and then they deliver and follow through on that. Mm. Um, so I don't think it's you know, like the dinosaur situation where it's 96 and 4. Um, I think that Roche has continued to grow, as, at least from what I can see financially, very well, mm -hmm. sort of industry leading amongst the large companies. And I think part of that is the fact that they do continue to provide innovation on the instrumentation side, right. and then to sort of provide testing solutions for things that customers want and that are sort of part of guidelines, rather than necessarily trying to be super on the cutting edge to define an entire new thing, because they can actually go through and they've done a lot of that cutting edge stuff through a series of acquisitions. Very cool. Ken, 
Did you have a question for either Ajit or for Trevor? Well, I guess I'm just sort of curious for Ajit on the investment side. You said in the very beginning that you, you look for sort of the first mover. And I guess the question is, why, do you, why the first mover? Because a lot of times the first mover is going to make a lot of the mistakes. True. And so why not look for the fast follower who can sort of draft quickly and probably do things more efficiently and also perhaps find you know, a unique angle or something that's going to be differentiated to bypass the first mover? No, no very true. So a uh, couple of reasons. First is the DNA of the, the principles of the firm. I mean, we were once all entrepreneurs. We worked for a large company or created small companies. And you can't change your DNA. You are who you are. And, and if your DNA requires you know, that, that fire, if you will, that comes from being the first mover, it's hard to change. That's reason one. Reason two, typically, if there's already a second mover, so if there's one, look for three. If there's three, there'll be nine. So, be, and then if there are nine, it's very hard to take bets. So we'd rather take a riskier bet three, four years earlier, and of course, we'll screw up sometimes, but then you harness as much of the early mover advantage as possible. I mean, look at this company, Aditas, that we talked about. After four years of founding, there is no competitor yet. And I, it's not out of hubris. There is actually no competitor. There's no one who said, let me turn the construction industry on its head. It's an $8 trillion industry, $8 trillion. Second largest after defense, bigger than healthcare. Negative productivity gains every year. And after four and a half years, we don't have a competitor. So if you pick the space that's kind of out there and very fragmented, I mean, construction is a very fragmented industry. It's made up of mom and pop shops. The last patent in construction was in 1967 by Bechtel, use of a crane to lift heavy objects for construction. That's the title of the paper, of the patent. You can change something there, seriously. Anything for Trevor? Well, I guess one thing you commented on earlier was that it's, in, it's that large companies are good at certain things and it's hard for innovation. And so, yet, whether it be in pharma, I don't want to just limit this to diagnostics, pharma diagnostics or whatever, a lot of the times they do acquire the innovation. So um, why should large companies then even try to maintain centers of research and innovation if generally the return has, I mean, is it just because it's historical and you need to have one? Or is there a model here where it's like save the investment dollars that are being made internally and focus those all externally? My name is Trevor. <laughs> I got an answer and I'd love to add to it. What you say? You know, I, it's, it's always important, you know, one of the things that we, we use our innovators for is not only scouting, uh, having innovation projects to, to develop new fields, but we use them extensively for due diligence. And so it's really important that we have that infrastructure. I mean, look, we know that, that internally the, the, the next greatest idea is almost certainly not going to come from within the company. It's going to come from an acquisition. But we need to have folks internal to the company who are reading the papers, who are going to the conferences, who understand these kinds of things, and then can be really active during due diligence. That's really one of the key, key things that we use these, in, these individuals for. But you know, it's, I think one of the things that is, is, is changing within a company like Siemens, I think Roche is already further ahead than we are, is the realization that if you are going to acquire Leave them alone. You know, don't try and integrate them. And, and that is absolutely one of the key learnings. Um, you know, we're unwinding some of this as we sort of look at being a company within a company because we're saying that healthcare should be different from the engineering pieces of, of, of the rest of Siemens. And we're trying to trickle that down to other, other pieces. 
But it's all about having landing spots and having people within the company who can intelligently say, yes, this is the company you should buy, uh, and let's, let's go look at them a little closer. Another angle to what, what uh, you said, Trevor, you know, where does the value of a company come from? You know, sustainable, profitable growth is only one source, that's innovation. So you can do profitability by cutting costs, you can get growth by reducing price, but sustainable, profitable growth is only innovation. Whether you have it inside or outside, besides the point. Value comes from brand, Coca-Cola, for example. Value comes from people, if you're a service business, so ENY and, and others. Uh, I, I've been observing J&J, and so I don't know too much about J&J from, from as, as much as an outsider can know. But one thought which is percolating at J&J is what's, what's the real value? It's the brand. So why is it so essential to have innovation in-house? What's the dogma? Why, why does it have to be in-house? And say, harness your brand, let other people innovate, and at the right time, right place, right price, buy the innovation, give it your brand, and make it fly. So in principle, there's nothing wrong with it. You can have a holding company called Brands or Me, or J&J, or Google, or what have you, Alphabet, right? Mm. And say, I will acquire anything that looks cool, that has potential, and that's new, and that's first mover in a new space, and I'll give it my brand and push it to the, to the market. So in principle, there's nothing wrong with that, 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 that system of thinking, except that we've been too used historically, oh, gotta do it in-house. I mean, start Alfred Sloan, General Motors, everything got vertically integrated all the way to mining. You mine iron ore, you do metallurgy, you build steel, da, 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 and finally you build a car. And then in the 80s, it went the other extreme. You assemble a car from stuff made by other people, the other extreme and you don't have any in-house capability. So actually there's no dogma at all. You can have a view and say, I'll only have the brand, and I'll buy innovation, I have to be smart enough to buy innovation, but then I'll give it my brand and make it go. Any questions? Brenda. Yeah, I was actually gonna just push a little bit back and say, brand alone won't do it, you really need the sales Because a couple of companies I've built and sold to a large owner really got us traction because they had you're, you're right, but so there are notable exceptions. Look at a company called Menarini. Have you heard of it? $7 billion in revenue. Not a single innovation. Not a single salesperson in the company. Not a single salesperson. Only channels, channel contacts. Only channel contacts. So there's, there's always a way to beat the dogma. There are notable exceptions. Notable exceptions. Right? So... But in principle, I agree with you. But as I said earlier, sometimes to make a point, you have to say something provocative, which is extreme, right? So I said something extreme. We've gone kind of long, and so I want to give everyone an opportunity to ask the panelists questions privately or publicly. So if somebody has a question they want to share with the rest of the room, terrific, now would be the time. If not, we're, we're going to be here. The food and wine is out here for our enjoyment. We ask and invite you all to join us and stay. And, um, and participate in the, the casual setting and the, the informal opportunity to speak with our guests. So please, give them a round. For links and information about the discussion, or for more episodes, please visit sloanpartners.com. See you next time on Becoming CEO. This podcast is brought to you by Sloan Partners, an executive search firm specializing in the diagnostics, life science tools, healthcare information technology, and laboratory testing industries. 
Sloan Partners, premier talent delivered.